It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat. My baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Hey, my name's Dave. I'm the producer of this podcast. This will be the last episode you hear from me because although over the last few months I've become very passionate about getting the word out about the hopes surrounding eating disorders, I haven't lived through one. We think it's best you hear from someone with a lived experience. I'm a dad of three and I want to do anything in my power to help keep my kids away from eating disorders because I've seen what it does to families firsthand and I want to keep my children as far away from this world as humanly possible. This is why I've teamed up with Millie Thomas, who has fully recovered from anorexia, but spent half of her life fighting the disease and was days away from losing her life to it. Millie is incredible. She has given up her life now to help people recover from eating disorders. You'll hear from Millie in a moment, and I want to introduce you to her and chat to her about this podcast, because over the next 20 episodes, you'll hear life-changing stories from people who have recovered from all types of eating disorders. I sincerely hope that this podcast is life-changing for you and shows you the hope that you deserve. Here's Melly's story. Anorexia, such a harsh, sharp word, rather fitting considering what it pertains to, a word charged with guilt, blame, secrecy and despair. I can still hear the whispered comments from Millie, you're about to host these 20 episodes coming up, but we wanted to find out a bit more about you and your story because it's really important and we've said this all along that if we're going to help people, we want someone with lived experience and we know that you have had an eating disorder. So I was wondering if you could start by kind of telling us all about your story and what's happened to you over the last 20 years to bring you to the spot where you are today. Sure. So for me, my eating disorder started when I was 12. So I had had a really idyllic childhood. I was incredibly lucky. I had no issues with body image or food. Um, And unfortunately for me, though, what we know now is that I was genetically predisposed and I had all the personality characteristics, OCD, type A, high achiever. 
that would predispose me to having anorexia. And so those genes um, and personality characteristics loaded the gun. And then I was put into a private all-girls school. And that's what pulled the trigger for me. So when I got to that school, I just felt like I didn't fit in. It was only a little feeling. It wasn't a huge one, but I felt that all the girls were that little bit thinner than me. That was something that my brain just chose to focus on, I guess. And so I decided that I was going to lose a little bit of weight for summer. It started very, very innocently, so much so that my parents did not blink an eyelid. I just decided that I wanted to make healthier choices. I wanted to start making my own lunch. Then it started to very, very quickly snowball. So I started to make my own lunch and take it to school, but not eat it. I started to say that I'd eaten at soccer practice. I started to increase my exercise. And by that point, the eating disorders claws were dug in so deeply that I really, really didn't have have any control anymore and so by the beginning of of that next year at school I was I was taken out of school and basically we started uh, what was so FBT so family-based therapy so my mum stopped work to try and feed me and that was and often still is the prescribed course of treatment for young individuals who develop anorexia unfortunately what that doesn't address is the psychological underlying factors so yes I was refed I was renourished but because there's this belief that at a certain weight you can't receive psychological treatment because your brain won't be receptive to it. I didn't receive psychological treatment alongside that at first. And so what happened was that I got to an acceptable weight, I guess. I sort of rode that line of being at that minimum BMI, but being able to go back to school. It was really hard to do the FBT and there was a lot of, you know, there were fights. And however, because I was 12, I did really have to do what my parents were telling me to do at that point. And so I went back into school in year nine and I everybody thought it looked like I was well. That was really, really hard because I was still just as screwed up in the head, possibly even more so because I felt like I didn't have the body that matched what was going on in my mind. It was, it was really hard, so I just pretended I pretended like I was okay, although I wasn't. And of course, my close friends knew that I wasn't because I didn't do all the normal teenage things. I didn't go to parties. I didn't attend, you know, other social events where food was around. Or if I did, I didn't eat food. I had to go and have my lunch with the school counselor. Things like that had to happen because I wasn't able to to do things on my own. For me, school provided this I guess a bit of an escape, but also a bit of an excuse because I just threw myself into academia. You know, I was this perfectionist high achiever. Mm. So I was able to go and throw myself into doing that and really not focus on the fact that I really wasn't living a life like all my all my girlfriends were. I wasn't. I wasn't dating. You know, I wasn't going through puberty as they all were. I'd got my period once when I was 12 and then I never got it back again. And so there were all these things that they were experiencing and not only, you know, um, dating relationships, but just, you know, relationships with other girls and those sort of things. They were all very surface type things because I was so up in my head. And so I threw myself into 
getting, you know, straight A's and and achieving that and not focusing on the fact of all of the other things that I was missing out on because I refused to let go of my eating disorder. It got to a point in my year, thir- year 13, so that's the last year of school in New Zealand, where I was chosen to go to represent NZ at the Global Young Leaders Conference in the States. That was the first time that I'd ever been away from my parents since I'd developed my eating disorder for an extended period of time. I hadn't really thought much about it. I thought it's an amazing opportunity. Of course, I'll do it. Again, you know, I was riding that line of being at the minimum BMI, so I was an acceptable weight, so I could go. I got on that plane, and I'll never forget sitting down in my seat and the eating disorder just digging its claws in and being like, perfect, we don't have to eat now. No one's watching you. No one's there because up until now it was very much I struggled to eat unless I was being forced to or I, I knew that there was someone watching over me. And so, can, sorry, can you just take us through that voice that that was speaking to you? What did it sound like? Was it was it you speaking to yourself? Did you feel like you were telling you that information to you're, you're free to not eat now or, or did you feel like it's a voice of someone else telling you to do something? It very much was not me. Um, it was the voice of, of anorexia. I don't, it's not like it had a particular tone or a particular sound. It was more like this dull hum that was always there, but it sort of just ramped up in, in volume and intensity. And I guess it was almost like a physical feeling too. Like Mm. I, I remember sitting down in the seat and thinking, and half of me was because there was, you know, the eating disorder self and my healthy self doing that battle within me. Half of me was like, yeah, that's that's good because then I'll be able to lose weight and, and I don't have to eat and I don't have to worry about all of those things in my head while I'm away. And it's the other half of me going, okay, this could be, end really, really badly. But the eating disorder was stronger because it, I hadn't dealt with those underlying factors that were driving it. And so literally that trip, was as much as it was the most incredible experience, I lost a considerable amount of weight because I could not get myself to to nourish myself as I needed to. I remember there was a day on that trip, it was middle of summer in the States, and I'd somehow con- the, my eating disorder had somehow convinced me that day that water was fattening. And so I remember that day freaking out about, and I got to the point where I had to have a sip of water and then freaking out about having the sip of water. And that was that moment when I realized it had gotten really, really bad. And I was really, really consumed again. So what do you do then? Does that um, provide a pit of fear, like almost dread in your body that you're not in charge anymore? Very much so. I remember lying. Um, there were very full days that we were having there. It was very, very scheduled. Um, you know, we were like going to the United Nations. Then we were being dropped off at other, you know, we were in Times Square in New York till midnight at night. And I remember this one time in Times Square and, you know, the lights and the billboards and, you know, this 24-7 city. And I literally just felt like I was going to either faint, vomit, something because I was just so out of it. And I think that's what it is. You're sort of in this state of euphoria, but you're also so out of it because you're not nourished, you're not present, you're not there. And I just remember trying to get through each day, but you're literally the physical feeling of hunger is so, so strong. 
but you, the driving force of the eating disorder just completely overcomes that. So you just keep going. And the more weight that you, well, this is for me, the more weight that I lost, the more euphoric I felt. So the baggier that things got, the more concave my stomach was, the more bones that I could feel, the more euphoric I felt. Mm. It what There was never a thought of, well, when you get home, what's this going to mean? Um, what if you end up in ho- hospital? I mean, I was incredibly lucky not to be hospitalized in the States, mm. you know, I, and to not have some sort of medical episode on that plane on the way home. I vividly, vividly remember um, coming back through the arrivals hall in Auckland Airport. And when mum hugged me, she just she burst into tears because I had, had really, in those, I think it was about 10 days that I was away, dropped, as I say, a considerable amount. The unfortunate thing was that I was 18. And so it's sort of that switch from, from child to adult in terms of, of medical treatment and the way that, well, you're allowed to not have your parents part of treatment, but also I had this sense of, well, I can actually do what I want. So I never actually regained that weight that I lost. It became what I call my new normal because my body learned how to exist at that weight. So mm. that became my new weight that I sat at. I got a scholarship to university. I went, so I went straight there, studied my business degree. I never tried to hide it. I was always very open with my friends about the fact that, yeah, this is what I was going through. A lot of them said that that was actually really helpful for them to know. They didn't know how to help or what to do, but at least I wasn't, you know, secretive about it. It was an issue and it was, you know, and they knew that if I wasn't at school, it was obviously because I'd had a bit of a lapse or I needed some time out. Were you were you proud of the label of anorexia or were you disgusted by it? Like it was both. Okay, right. Both. Wow. So there is literally and it's it's hit like it's almost like I feel it, just to even say it, like there was this perverse pleasure in being skinny enough that someone would see you walking down the street and know she's got anorexia. So there was this, why did I get pleasure out of that? I have absolutely no idea, but I did. And it was like, if people weren't staring, then you're clearly not bad enough. And so there was this, there was this part of me that wanted that and was driving, to, wanted to be the perfect, I don't like using the word anorexic because you, you aren't, you're eating disorder, but mm. there was the part of me that wanted to be perfect at doing this whole anorexia business and doing it really hard and proving that I could I could really, really do it. Then there was this other part of me that felt absolutely disgusted that I had somehow gone down this path because at that I, I was very ashamed that about what I was doing um, and how this was affecting, you know, my family. Um, but that pleasure in that drive to be skeletal overtook that. So there was this dichotomy between the two and that's that healthy self eating disorder self thing going on. And so do you feel like that's a constant conversation during your time of uh, having anorexia is a constant conversation between you and the eating disorder, almost negotiating? Absolutely. But most of the time it wasn't a negotiation. This is the thing. You think you are in control. So the thought of giving up your eating disorder is petrifying because you feel like you're going to lose all control. Mm. But the reality of it is, it is a perceived control because you're not in control. Your eating disorder is completely in control. 
And so recovery is actually, although it feels like you're losing control, you're actually regaining back that control. Anyone had said that to me in the midst of my eating disorder would have just gone straight over my head and Mm. I would have just literally said, well, no, that's ridiculous because I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. These are my choices. Leave me alone. It it literally hijacks your brain. So you believe it. And the, the, the more years that I spent in my eating disorder, the more that I subscribed to its values and the way that it wanted me to live my life. I lost myself in my eating disorder completely. So you did a whole heap of successful things with your eating disorder. You did a uni degree. So how long between when you were diagnosed to when you, you know, woke up to, well, the actual issue and wanted to change something? So I went to university, yep. studied my business degree, topped the business school, was, was not good enough. It was absolutely not good enough. I remember mum and dad wanting to celebrate the, f- the fact that I'd done that. It wasn't good enough for you? No. Nope. You, you weren't nope. happy with that? No. My eating disorder wasn't happy with it. So, and, and, and at that point, my eating disorder and I were one and the same, mm. right? So it wasn't good enough. You could have done better. Um, I think that I'd got um, straight A pluses, but there was one where there was an A or some, something. Mm. So there was some reason that it could have been better. Yeah. And so, you know, I look back at all these remarkable things that I did achieve. It's interesting. I, I find it incredible that I was able to, on such little nourishment, achieve the results that I did. But then when I reflect on it, I think it comes back to that sense of euphoria Mm. and that absolute drive and determination. And when I was studying, I wasn't thinking about that hunger. So I was able to throw myself into that and it allowed me to basically numb myself to the physical and mental pain that I was feeling from my eating disorder. And it gave me a focus. Right. And so after I finished university, I went into starting my career. And look, I had wonderful jobs with beautiful, supportive people around me. However, you know, it would always get to a point where I would, again, push myself too hard. My eating disorder get back in control. I remember there was one job that I was in and, you know, it was about how far could I park car away from where where the office is, to walk to the office, to then, you know, can I then in, you know, at, in my break time, burn some more calories? How can I avoid eating food? They were mm. just, it was always about how can I burn off as much as I possibly can and how can I restrict my intake? I was always able to do my job mm. because that was just me. I was able to put my brain on and do it, but it got to points where people were like, well, it's too dangerous for you to be here in the office. If something happens to you, if you have a heart attack, it's our duty of care to look after you. And so I would have to take time off. I had breaks at different times. And then of course, threw myself into going traveling because it meant that I didn't have to actually just come face to face with the fact that I needed to focus on this recovery Mm. and, and getting well. And so I would travel and then I would start a new job. And that pattern sort of repeated itself. It's interesting when Facebook memories come up and, you know, I see these pictures of me in in Majorca, you know, looking as if I'm having this amazing time. And I remember that trip. Mm. I remember, you know, existing on minimal food and, and getting up in 35 degree heat and having to do, you know, my specific exercises. And it wasn't a life that I was living. It was an absolute existence. It's not, it's not a life at all. And so that just kept happening until I really was at a point where I, I wasn't 
able to work because mentally and physically I was just... You can't keep going. You can't, you can't <laughs> function like that. Exactly. My dad used to call me the energizer bunny because he just couldn't understand how I could just keep, keep, going. keep going. And I was being seen as an outpatient at a service in Auckland. I just vividly remember the day where they pulled me and my parents into a room and there were a whole lot of different clinicians there and and the head clinician just basically said, you will not survive. Your case of anorexia is too severe and enduring. We really haven't seen anything like it and advised my parents that they should be looking at palliative care options. Wow. And I just remember sitting there in that seat. I remember exactly where I was in that room where the psychiatrist sat and I remember just thinking – well, fuck it. Yeah. Then what? What's what's the point? Like this is so hard. Every moment of every day is a battle, and you're telling me that even if I manage to weight restore, which you what you think is ninety nine percent impossible, mm. that I'm still going to then have to battle with the thoughts and manage it for the rest of my life. What is the point? You know, in my mind, it was like well, I'd rather be skinny. If I'm going to have the thoughts, I'd rather be skinny right. and have the body to match yeah, the wow. thoughts. That day. Well, that was the day when I just decided, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try so hard. Like, what will be, will be. And so I lost even more weight. Those days were definitely, definitely some of my darkest days. I remember everything just existing around. Like, I, w- I wouldn't sleep because I was just so starving. So I'd get up in the middle of the night and watch freaking cooking shows. I mean, it is so, so ridiculous when I think back to it. But to me, there was no other option. You know, I was sitting there starving, but there was no way that I was going to eat because to have to deal with the intensity of the thoughts and the punishment that I would then have to do in terms of the exercise for whatever I had had, it was just far too much. Mm. And every morning it was like, okay, here we go again. You know, I have to do this. I have to do. It wasn't just the exercise; it was the routines. The OCD was just in full flight. You know, I have to do this and I have to do that before I can do this. It was it was absolutely hideous. I d- I didn't want to wake up anymore because I had to face that. Like at that point, I had massive stress fractures in my hips. I remember going to this doctor who was he was I can't remember what his title was. Anyway, he's showing me the the X rays of my hips and the base of my spine. At this stage, I've got the bone density of an eight-year-old. And I'd already been told by various doctors that, you know, I'd be in the wheelchair by the time I'm 30 if I make it that that old. And he turned to my mum and said, well, you're going to have to stop her from running. And she just looked at him and said, well, how do you, how do you propose I do that? Hmm. Because at that stage, I was probably oh, 26. What, what are you going to do? You're going to tie me down? Like the compulsion to do it was so strong. And so I remember him saying, you know, care of the stress fractures and your bone density at the base of your spine is particularly bad. So that means even if you walk down the stairs, you could end up fracturing your spine if you just walk the wrong way or you jolt yourself. Absolutely no way was I going to stop. There was no way. Just like, oh, well, whatever. Hmm. It'll happen. There was no, just like when I was told you'll probably never have children. It doesn't resonate because you are absolutely completely severed from your emotions. You're completely numb, numb to it. You know, I remember the same thing the day that my brother basically just like lost it at me and said, you've, you've, you've ruined our family. You know, mum and dad are on the verge of divorce. You've ruined my childhood. Like, what more do you want? And I just stood there just absolutely blank face, like my only brother. I was prepared to lose that relationship 
all I thought my brain inside my brain was like, oh, well, at least I'll get to be skinny. It's like you, you just don't care. Nothing else matters. It wasn't my values. Like mm. I didn't care about what I looked like pre-eating disorder. That wasn't high on my priority list. But once you're in it, once it digs its claws in, like you are, you are not yourself. I was an absolute shadow of who I was before. You know, it just completely took over. Sounds to me like the eating disorder decides to try and make you have no fuel so that it can take full charge. What What is the goal of an eating disorder? Is Did you almost feel like, because you're such a driven person, you're almost like when you got told that you were going to be put in palliative care, is that a successful thing for the eating disorder? Is it Does the eating disorder then say, oh, awesome, we're almost there? You know, is, is death the goal of the eating disorder? So I would say that death is the ultimate goal of, of anorexia. That's what it wants to do. That was its modus operandi for, for me, okay? but that's, that, that's hard to hear. And, and this is why it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. This is, this is, why, this is why it kills people mm. because it is, it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. It is this it, – it's literally a beast inside your head that just takes you over. You have no control. Mm-hmm. I, I look back on it and I think, yeah, but, you know, I could have – there were moments that I could have – in those moments I didn't feel like I could. I didn't feel like I had any control mm. over it whatsoever it drove me to this point where I literally was like I can't I I can't do this anymore like I am out and that was that was the point where yeah I went to my GP um he'd been my GP since I was a child and so I'd obviously stopped seeing the outpatient team once they said to me once they basically gave up hope because that's what they did they took any shred of hope that I had that I would get my life back away from me. And so I literally did not want to see them ever again. Did they feel defeated? Did they feel like we, if you can't help yourself, then how can we help you? Like, did they do the right thing by almost going, all right, you're on your own. Or do you think they did the wrong thing by saying, by telling you there's no way out from this other than you deciding that you need to get out? Did they do the right thing or the wrong thing? But the thing is, they didn't say it like that, Dave. They yeah. didn't say, you know, this is your choice, this is your decision. It was it was almost like they freaking gave me a death sentence that day. Right. Because it was like, you won't recover. It's, this has gone on for too long now. You're right. too severe. We've tried everything. It was this idea. It wasn't like, we're not the team for you or we think that you need to try different things. It was, well, sorry, you know, you're not going to make it. So saying you don't matter, almost. But just there was no. It, I mean, it comes down to that hope. It that that I'd always tried to hold on, and my parents had always, you know, held on to that hope, even when I was just like totally felt hopeless. And I think I just remember walking out of there and being like, "Well, that's that then." But do, so, do you feel happy about that because the eating disorder is in charge, right? Not you, Millie. When the eating disorder hears that, is that almost like, oh, we're on the right track? Or is it, Mm. are you scared at that point? Like what's going through your mind to fight the demon that is the eating disorder to try and go, is this the right or wrong thing I should be feeling right now? I think I was really angry. At who? 
at the team, at, at particularly at the psychiatrist. I was really angry. So that's that's what I remember mm. feeling when I walked out. Yeah. And then the next day being like, oh, well, I just, um, you know. Checked I'm, out. Yeah, really, really checked out. And, and that was when, you know, things spiraled further. And that's when I got to that point where I yeah, turned up at my GP's office and he just took one look at me and I could, I could see that he had tears in his eyes. Mm. And it was that ultimatum of, okay, we've, we've got a week, maybe two here you, as to live. Yeah. Uh, your body will not keep going like that. You know, I'd already had times where I'd been put into hospital because my heart had, um, you know, been playing up and all those things. Mm. And, you know, I'd let them get it back to just on the, on the line of being okay. And they would advise that I stay in. And then of course I would just leave. And so the pressure that I was putting on my body was, I mean, I just remember I had this uniform at the time black leggings, these black tops and this big black puffer jacket because I was just permanently cold. I was freezing. I was just constantly freezing. I was constantly sore. I couldn't sit down anywhere because my bones were sticking out. I, I, I was in so much pain. Like my whole body just ached to the bone. Like it just ached. And so I was just walking around trying to get through life with very, very minimal nourishment, still pushing myself with exercise, even though I was so far gone, mm. you know, not sleeping the whole, the whole thing. And, and I remember when my GP, you know, sort of gave me that ultimatum, it was this moment of, yeah, no, I'm done, you know, and I'm such a fighter and I am, you know, I don't give up, mm. but I, I literally couldn't, I sat in that chair that day and thought, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I've never been suicidal, Dave, never, never once thought about ending my life, but I didn't want to wake up to face what had become my reality. It was, it was a hideous existence and I just wanted some peace. I wanted peace physically. I wanted peace mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I, I wanted out and the only way that the only way that I could see that happening was to not be here, was to be in the clouds and looking down on everything from afar. Like I'd have these like visions of lie in bed at night and be like, if I could just be up there and I could still kind of see life and I could still see what happens to everyone and like see what happens um, and life goes on. But that was the only way that I could ever fathom being at peace. I'll come back to that in a sec, but right now switch forward to where you're sitting right now and you think back to that moment how does that make you feel feeling that the past millie with an eating disorder was willing to let go and and not fight petrifies me it's hard i know that i almost didn't make it and i think you know my eating disorder had it almost felt like my eating disorder had won it almost pretty much got what it wanted, it, which was to murder me. That's, that's how I look at it. It's like, it, it is, it's like a murderer, you know. It lives inside of you until it can take every last little bit of you till you feel like, you know, I can't do this anymore. And that's how, that's how it felt. Like it felt like I, 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 I can't go on. Mm. Um, and I think about it now and I'm like, all of the things that I would have, 
missed out on if I hadn't happened to make it make it through. I know you a little bit now. We've spent some time together and just hearing that moment where you're willing to give up sounds like a non-milly decision. You're a 100% fighter and you're so driven and to even think about coming to that moment where you're happy to end it all uh, for some peace is hard to hear because it's not you. It wasn't you at all. And to have you, that murderer inside your head, trying to stop everything and stop the awesomeness that you bring into the world now is just, it's its scary. It's scary to hear that that could happen. Um, you mentioned something about your brother just coming to you and said, what the hell do you want? You, you're, you're destroying our family. You're destroying me because I, I know as a, as a brother, you'd want to help and you want to do everything you can, but there's no, there's no clear answers out there. That's a part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to try and give people understand there's a community of people going through things like this. But your brother was at that point where he's like, I can't do any more for you. What do you want out of this? Do you want us to let you go? He was incredibly frustrated watching. I mean, what he was watching was me slowly kill myself mm. because that's ultimately what, what that was. But from was- his perspective, it was you killing yourself, but in your head it's the eating disorder killing you. That, that's a hard battle to face. <laughs> well, it's really hard. It's really hard to see that that's not his sister just making these choices and doing it no. because until you've experienced that, it's like, well, hang on. If you, can, you, you don't have to be doing this. You don't have to be putting our family through this. Yeah. And I think back to the things that I did, like it mortifies me, the manipulation, the lying the thing, you know, my eating disorder wanted to sever mom and dad's relationship because then they weren't a team against my eating disorder, wow. you know. And so it was, I would do anything to try and cause conflict and, and, and things like that. Not all the time, but there were specific things to remember, you know, doing and thinking this is really like, there was a little part of me like, this is really wrong, but I had no control over what I was doing. The mm. eating disorder was in the driver's seat driving me mm. to do that stuff. You know, it doesn't just affect you. It does, it affects, the ripple effect yeah. is is massive. And not only that, but like, you know, the extended family that don't get it and then make judgments about like sure. how like mum was dealing with it or how dad was dealing with it or how Eddie was dealing with it. It's like no one knows what goes on behind those closed doors. No one saw that like nitty, gritty, dark, the screaming matches that it just absolute just – eating disorder in full, full force, like raging, because that doesn't happen on the outside. That happens behind closed doors most of the time. Yeah. I find it interesting because you're you're quite open about the eating disorder at that point in time, but you're still being sneaky. What type of sneaky behavior did you do? Because it seems like you're quite open and honest, and obviously you can see the effects on your body that you have an eating disorder, right? You're being diagnosed. So why did you have to be sneaky about it? Because I wanted to get a well, I wanted to get away with it. I didn't want to be pulled up. I wanted to be, right. I wanted to be able to get away with thinking that someone thought I was eating that when I really wasn't. Right. Be able to go on that run when I really wasn't, you know, allowed to to be running. I mean, I guess ultimately no one could stop me from doing it. And I guess you're right in a way. It's like why were you hiding it? Mm. But there were certain things I remember over over a period of time that mum and dad you know, would say, well, you know, unless you stop doing this particular behavior, then you're going to have to move out. You're going to have to, we can't continue to have this happening. And so 
there were different things that I needed to do in order to get what I wanted, which was, well, I knew that I couldn't go and live on my own. I, I would die. Mm. Like if I went and lived on my own, and, and we're talking me in my mid-20s. We're not talking me at 12. We're talking like mid-20s when most of my friends were married. Yeah. There was no way that I could have lived on my own. I wouldn't have eaten. And I would have just gone and exercised all day. So interesting. There's still a self-preservation there, isn't there? And that's the Millie side. You know, uh, you want you because you want to live, but your eating disorder wants you to die, and that's that con- a constant conflict is just mind blowing. You're just exhausted on every single level, but somehow you manage to keep going. I don't know how. I I don't know how, and I don't know how when I continued to see that number going down and down and down, and me reaching new lows and new lows and new lows that I then couldn't, as an intelligent young woman, correlate that fact with this is not compatible with life. There was always a new goal. So the goalpost shifted and it was like, great, you've reached that now. Let's reach this. Look, you managed that. Look at you go. Let's see. Push, Mm. push, push. Wow. Millie, if you got to go back in time to a younger Millie, you've spent your whole life helping people with the recovery. And we'll get to how you recovered in just a second. If you could go back to an age in your life, what age would you go to? And what would you say to that young Millie Thomas to get her out of this earlier? I would, I would probably go back to, to year six. So in primary school, before I got my new all girls private school, I would say to her that she was enough. Just as she, just as she is, she doesn't need to change herself to fit in. That she is loved, and that she shouldn't let herself be led down the garden path by anyone or anything. And that she can stand firm in in, in who she is and and what she stands for. And she doesn't need to change that for anyone, mm. because I think there was that little piece of insecurity there which the eating disorder just capitalized on it and possibly I don't know but possibly if I had been a little bit more self-assured around I don't change myself for anyone everybody's unique there was just this feeling of if I can look like them then I'll be popular or then I'll I'll feel amazing I'll never have to worry about anything you know there was that idea of if I could just achieve perfection in my body then I would have the perfect life. Mm. So nothing else would matter if I could just have that thigh gap, if I could just have arms like that. It was all, in my mind, all related. And I think, you know, it's interesting you say to me, do I regret it? I don't regret it at all. I regret the things that I missed out on. I regret not having those carefree teenage years, those years in my 20s where I could have been in relationships, traveling, those sort of things. Absolutely, there are so many things that I missed out on, but I don't regret what it taught me and where it's brought me to because I wouldn't be the person that I am today without having gone through it. And it's given me a really, really unique gift and I, I am a firm believer in the fact that everything happens for a reason. And, and as I've said to you before, I do believe 
that there is a reason why my battle was was so prolonged, you know, was those 15 harrowing, harrowing years and so severe because that means that I can I can absolutely speak from the heart when I say that I believe that recovery, no matter how long or how hard someone struggled with an eating disorder, full recovery is completely, completely possible. I'm not saying that it happens for everyone. Mm. We know that people lose their lives, but it is possible if you make that choice and you want to do it. There is hope is is your mantra, isn't it? There is. Because you got told so early there is no hope. There is. And and this is the thing and this is what drives me to keep doing what I'm doing. Mm. Don't don't you dare take someone's hope away from them. As a clinician, as a parent, as a friend, anyone, you have no right to take someone's hope away from them. And I will continue to fight for that t- till the day I die mm. that there is nobody has any right to take hope away from someone because sometimes hope is all you have. Mm. Wow. Incredible stuff. Now you have, you're fully, you're fully recovered now. No, that's all right. I think like throughout these 20 episodes that we're going to go through, you talk a lot about your recovery journey and, and we, and you get to talk to some people that have had some massive impact in your recovery over the next 20 episodes it's incredible meeting these people and we've we've recorded these 20 episodes this is the one of the last ones we're doing um, because it was important for us to to see how it was going to unfold and see what conversations came out and some of these some of these stories that have come out over the over the next 20 episodes have been one so hard to hear but also just so encouraging that there is hope there actually is hope so the hope that you had was from that moment where your mum said she wants to send you back to the Sunshine Coast, which you've said to me so many times uh, off the podcast that this is your happy place. So just quickly, what, what happened when you came back to the Sunshine Coast that absolutely changed everything for you? So mum, yes, fortunately brought me back over here and it had always been my happy place. I came over here, mum had found Silky, who we will we will hear from in one of our episodes and Silky specialises in neurolinguistic programming, so NLP and hypnotherapy. Now, mum had found her online and I really went to see Silky for mum. You know, she had stopped her whole life for me. Mm. You know, that, at that point, she really did. You know, when I was 12, she stopped work. I was her shadow for a lot of the time because she wasn't there, then things weren't going to go so well and I wasn't going to eat and really she devoted herself to keeping me alive mm. and that's basically what it was. And so I said that I'd, I'd give it a shot. I vividly remember walking in to the room. It was actually interesting. Silky reminded me the other day that I could hardly walk up the stairs to the room and that within five minutes of the those initial sessions I fell asleep because I was – Arced, Exhausted, basically. yeah. Yeah. I remember the first few sessions being obsessed, sitting there and just looking at my thighs on the chair and just thinking about that and thinking about how fat they were and not really taking in anything she was saying and saying to mum after the first session, oh, mum, it's not going to work, you know. I, did, I don't remember anything that she said and, and mum said, well, will you give it another go? And, and so I told Silky that it wasn't her, it was me, I'm just too far gone. And she just said to me, she said, do you want to change your brain? I said, of course I do, but, you know, 
I've been told that it's not possible. So, you know, I'm not stupid. Yeah. And she just kept saying, do you want to change your brain? Yes. Well, you can change your brain then. And it was this moment of, I could actually do this. Like she believes that I could do this. She gave you and hope. She gave me back that hope. She did. Yeah. She gave me back that hope in that moment. And I, yeah, from that, well, no, not from that moment on. I have to say I, there was, there was resistance. I think what Silky did was dive straight in to the very, very bedrock of my eating disorder. The things that I had been avoiding dealing with for the last 15 years. Mm. And that was the the most confronting, petrifying, excruciating. I cannot even probably articulate to you how that felt for me. Mm. I screamed at her. I swore at her. She walked out. I walked out. I swore I was never going to go back. How dare she take that away from me? Don't tell me that I'm going to have to do. There were so many things that I had to confront. But I made this decision that, I wasn't going to, I didn't want to die not knowing what it was like to truly live. And I didn't know what it was like to live. I was a kid when I got unwell. I didn't know what it was like to live as an adult, have a life, do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. Because I was a child being dictated to by my parents. And then I was being dictated to by my eating disorder. And still at 27 years of age, that's what was happening. I had no life. And so I really felt like I owed it to myself. And that's when I took that leap and I dived in. And to this day, it is still the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life because it was, it's like, I always say it's like someone with arachnophobia being asked to eat spiders. And, you know, you literally feel the spiders in you and you just want to rip your skin off and it is disgusting. You know, I remember this specific incident where I had started to to weight restore and I'd gone up to have a nap and I started to scream about something. And what I was screaming about was the fact that I'd felt my thighs touch. And that was just mortifying to me. That was just, and it almost goes back to that feeling of failure. Like you have let yourself go. Mm. Like, because your eating disorder is just going, look at you, look at you. You're disgusting. You know, I, I was convinced that I couldn't leave the house. I was convinced how could anyone, like people were going to have to see me. And that was just hideous. Like what I had let myself become. And so you just go through these rafts of, of just intense emotions. Like I can't even begin to describe but you keep pushing and I think that was the difference is that I kept pushing Mm -hmm. so there had been multiple therapists multiple different types of therapy and I would have always got to that point and gone oh okay we'll go back here now and get to that ah yeah yeah and it was smashing through that glass ceiling or whatever you want to call it and going, no, I'm not stopping here. I am going to give myself a chance, a real, real chance and do this properly this time. Wow. And and that's... To get yeah. to that point, <laughs> that is incredible. Uh, you are completely inspiring. I've got to know you over the last few months and um, it has been sincerely eye-opening and it's just been so Awesome getting to know you as a person and how much of your life you have dedicated to to helping other people with eating disorders, right? And now you work at NDED, uh, which is an eating disorders recovery facility. Can you tell us a bit more about that, where you work right now and what you're doing with that? 
Absolutely. So I'm very, very lucky to be, yeah, a part of Ended with my my Aussie mum and dad, uh, Mark and Gay, who are absolutely incredible. So they started Ended as a uh, parent support group some years ago now, and it has grown into something that is quite simply incredible. Mm. And we have a wonderful team. We run support groups. We do individual one-on-one recovery coaching just built Australia's first residential eating disorders facility uh, in partnership with the Butterfly Foundation. We're about to launch the Ended House of Hope. So that's going to be a really lovely holistic space where we hopefully will run day programs and it will also act as a bit of a step out facility for people who have come from the residential, from Wandi Nerida. We are all about connection, community and, and compassion. That's, that's really what drives us. And, and lived experience. We know that lived experience makes the difference. You know, if I had had someone with lived experience walking that journey alongside me, I am almost 99.9% sure that I wouldn't have spent half my life battling something that nearly killed me because I would have had living, breathing hope that I could get well. And I think that's what, that's what really, really drives me to want to see change in my lifetime that's what I want to see I want to see I want to help people I want to save people's lives well when I say save people's lives it's not about me saving their lives sure it's you know they're saving themselves but I want to help them on their journey to do that I want to help them on their journey to freedom I want to bring them from that darkness into the light I want to show them that there is light I want to help things change on a systemic level which Honestly, I do believe that this podcast is going to help that because we're going to start seeing people understanding that a lot of what we see in the media and a lot of these myths and stigma that are still out there, they aren't true. They aren't the case. And we need to listen more to people who have who have truly gone there, truly gone into the trenches and fought hard because those are the stories that give people an insight into, okay, this is what's going on for these individuals that, that are suffering. And so how can we be more empathetic? How can we help them? So we can change how eating disorders are perceived, how eating disorders are treated. Mm. And people don't have to go through what I went through and what I know many other people have faced um, in front of clinicians, which is that idea that, you know, they are flawed. There is no hope. I mean, there are so many things that I don't want people to ever have to hear again. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to step out of the podcast now for the next 20 episodes, but I just wanted to interview you and hear about your story because you talk about lived experience. And I think it's so important that this podcast is hosted by you who have uh, not only lost half your life to an eating disorder, but you've dedicated your life to helping other people recover from their eating disorders. I'm inspired by you. I've got three kids myself and um, it it scares the crap out of me to think that my daughters could have an eating disorder. It just scares me. It just, it scares or me. Or your that, son. Or my son. He's spot on. Yeah, that's, well, that's the other thing, the stigma that you're talking about. Uh, that this isn't just a, a rich white girl's disease, as you've mentioned before. 
it scares me. It scares me that this is out there. And so if I can support you and and Ed and the Butterfly Foundation and whoever is doing some great work in this field, I, I want to be able to do that. And so that's why we've put this podcast together, these 20 episodes of uh, incredible stories by incredible people who have either helped other people recover from eating disorder or have recovered themselves. And these stories are incredible, aren't they? They are. They're, they're, they are absolutely yeah. amazing. And I, I'm so excited to let them free mm. <laughs> in a way. I want them to reach as many people as they possibly can because I know it's not just people whose lives have been touched by an eating disorder that will find value in listening to these episodes. It's anybody. Yeah. Everybody. There is something for everybody to learn from listening. And there'll be some episodes that resonate with people more than others. But I think that's the beauty in in this collection of people that have brought together is that there I do believe there'll be something for everybody and little gems of wisdom to take away and or or just things to reflect on, mm. things to make you think. One last question. And gives me a little bit of tingles just asking this. You're fully recovered. Is that eating disorder voice still in your head and you ignore it? Or has that voice completely left Millie Thomas and now you're fully in control? That voice has completely left. Wow. I still definitely have my perfectionistic streak, yeah. <laughs> as you well know. Um, and I will always have to sort of keep my um, my drive in check, I guess, in terms of wanting to achieve a heck of a lot and only having so many hours in a day and only being human. Mm. And I think that's that's what I have to keep in check is this this drive and this ambition to be and to achieve what I want to achieve in my lifetime. And sometimes I try and do too much. So that's definitely something that I'm work in progress in terms Mm. of that, in terms of creating some balance in my life where where that's concerned. But I don't have the eating disorder voice in my head. I don't have to, as the professionals always told me, manage it. I don't have to manage it. I I'm not saying that I love my body every single day. I think everybody has days where they don't particularly love their bodies, but the difference is that I don't change how I nourish it, how I take care of myself or anything. It's just, oh, today's not such a great day. So, you know, it's it's no more than a fleeting thought of, huh, that sucks, I'll put on a flowing dress today. Whatever, yeah, right. whatever it is, it's just, it's not, you know, I think I always come back to one of the things that Carolyn Costin uses in her definition of recovery which is that your weight and your shape take a normal part in your life. They're in the hierarchy of things. They're just in a normal space. They don't consume you. They're not of particular importance because they're not. We have these incredible bodies. We are so, so lucky. And I think that that's one thing I've learned more than anything in my journey is just how resilient and incredible our bodies are because I do not have any idea how my body through everything that I put it through, is here today, healthy, well, strong. It is literally a miracle. So I think we need to be really mindful of that and treat our bodies with respect and love, the respect and love that they deserve. Well, there you go. That's Millie's story. Over the next 19 episodes, we're going to cover as many topics as we can, including bulimia, binge eating, orthorexia, eating disorders with pregnancy, and so much more. 
Yes, you're going to hear incredible stories of recovery, but Millie will also chat to world-renowned experts in eating disorder recovery to help equip you with as much information as possible. Before you go, if you know anyone who is dealing with this beast of a thing, share this podcast with them. Hit subscribe and join our End Eating Disorders podcast Facebook group. You can support End Ed at endedorgau by joining their 150 Club. Thanks for listening. There is hope at endedorgau. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media production.